As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, did you uh, enjoy the tomatoes that I brought you? <laughs> uh, for listeners, Tracy has an amazing tomato garden that she posts pictures of, and I've become tomato obsessed over the recent years. And today she finally brought me in a box of tomatoes. I haven't eaten them yet as of this recording, but Tracy, they look absolutely amazing. Thank you. I they appreciate that. They look so good. They, even, they exceed the hype. Let me tell you, a lot of equipment goes into growing tomatoes. So you look at the tomato and you think, I have probably spent maybe 50 bucks in tomato cages and fertilizer and compost in order to grow that one tomato. How many hours of your labor? Well, I don't count that. My, my labor is cheap. It's it's free for tomato <laughs> for growing. Tomatoes. But yes, uh, it's like gardening, all that stuff is a lot of gear. And I, one thing I know about you, Tracy... Just and this is, is uh -oh. that no, no, there's a compliment, which is that if you get into something like growing tomatoes, you take it very seriously. <laughs> you're not just gonna like throw some seeds in the ground and see what happens, you're gonna like buy all the right gear for it, see what the you know, the, the no, frames I, and all that. Like, I kind take, of did just throw the seeds in the ground, oh, okay. although actually, I grew them. Um, that's not true. I grew, I started them in an arrow garden in the kitchen, so there uh, you go, in like February, okay, and then so. I planted them in the ground. But my point is that there are a lot of people nowadays who are into growing. Growing their own food or maybe having their own chickens for eggs. Lots of people have pets, including myself. And of course, there are businesses who cater to this particular type of thing. Right. Not me because uh, I don't have a garden <laughs> or I don't have chickens or anything. But yes, absolutely. The sort of small farms, large gardens, etc. sort of uh, seems to be a booming era area hobbyist chicken owners like you maybe one day in the future and uh, there's probably a lot of money to be made and selling to people like you yeah i am still very focused on my dream of declaring egg independence one day but in the meantime do you remember a couple months ago we were speaking with samuel rines from yes. corbu and he mentioned a specific company that fits perfectly into this particular business he talked about tractor supply and he called it one of the most interesting retailers on the planet Right. I've always been curious about this company because, I mean, it's one of the most remarkable stocks several years ago as a $1 stock. As of today, when we're recording this on August 15th, it's a $222 stock, one of the huge sectoral winners. But also, it's like one of these companies where if you live in New York City, you probably never encounter them. But for much of the country, 
It's just this massive retail brand that's sort of thriving and taking over. Yeah, it's sort of one of those sleeper hits, kind of like Monster Beverage or Domino's Pizza. And I'm happy to say where I live in Connecticut, there is indeed a tractor supply store and I enjoy going there. They let uh, dogs in on a leash. So Pablo gets to come with me and sniff all the dog treats and look at the baby chicks and things like that. It is a fun experience. So the question is, how did this company build a absolute juggernaut? How did they find people like you? How do people (laughs) like you find Tractor Supply? And what is it that they have that others haven't been able to replicate or can't stomp out? Like, why doesn't Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or whatever just – or Amazon – like, how do they thrive? This is exactly it. And how much of it is them riding these sort of cottage core millennial <laughs> uh, hobby right. farm wave versus something maybe a little bit different? So I'm very pleased to say that we are finally doing our tractor supply episode, our long awaited tractor supply episode. And we do have the perfect guest. We're going to be speaking with Michael Roberto. He is the Bryant University trustee professor of management, and he has just published a case study for Harvard Business School all on the Tractor Supply Store. Michael, thanks so much for coming on All Thoughts. Thanks for having me, Tracy. So I have a really basic question just to begin with, but Harvard Business Studies, I hear about them all the time, and I think you wrote a very famous one about Trader Joe's, but what are they exactly, and how do they come about being created? How do you choose which companies to look at? So I've been writing Harvard cases since I was on the faculty there more than 20 years ago. And cases are supposed to put the students in the role of a senior leader at the business and put some decisions in front of them, put some Hmm. data in front of them and ask them instead of listening to a lecture, the students are supposed to grapple with a real world situation. Hmm. And the idea is that the case is not an analysis in the sense that the professor's opinion shouldn't shine through. Hmm. And we want the student to do the analysis. So in the case of tractor supply, why is this firm so successful? We want the student to infer that based on an in-depth reading of the case. I feel a lot of pressure now. I feel I like I should have read the, the case study and come away with a lot of conclusions, but actually I just have a bunch of questions. Well, I have a, I, I do want to get to the company, but since we are talking about these case studies, first of all, like how did you pick this company? But but then beyond that, okay, you say I want to I'm gonna do something on tractor supply. Like, what is the research? What is the time process? What do you do then? Exactly. So first, in terms of how I find them, all sorts of different ways, very opportunistically. Mm -hmm. In the case of Trader Joe's and Tractor Supply, they're both cases where I worked with David Ager at Harvard on both cases, and they're both places where I love them as a customer. Mm. I was struck by their customer service, struck by their success, and wanted to learn more. But in other cases, I'll write cases about companies that I've never been Mm. a customer for. So just finishing one up on Viking Cruise Lines. Mm. I've never been on a Viking cruise, but I got a mailing one day and it intrigued me, and that began my research. As for how I write these cases, in the case of Tractor, I dug around for a while trying to find someone at the firm that I could make contact with, Mm. and I finally did, and explained to them the process of writing a case, and they were gracious enough to invite me down to uh, Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, Brentwood, actually, and I spent a day there immersed in interviews with a wow. number of their people. And then it's months of library research, mm-hmm. online research, reading everything from stock analyst reports to obviously the 10Ks and the like. Awesome. Do you go to a lot of the stores? Do you get to look at the baby chickens and admire some of the, I don't know, fruit trees and fruit bushes that they're selling? Yes. Yeah, so I visited a number of stores and actually spent about a half a day 
with the store manager and district manager at the store closest to my home, interviewing them, talking to their customers, their employees, really trying to get a, an in-depth understanding of a store. So for someone who, say, lives in New York City and doesn't have any reason to buy chicken gear, if someone says, what is Tractor Supply Company? What is it? It is a store for the hobby farmer. Okay. Right? This hobby is a farmer. person who's not making a living okay. off of their land, right? This is a hobby. They have a full-time job and they're growing tomatoes like Tracy or they're hmm. raising chickens. I feel seen. Yes. Exactly. And, and so it's a combination of buying feed for your animals, buying various supplies, or even buying animals themselves like baby chicks. Huh. They sold nearly 11 million chicks last year. It's a pretty remarkable number. So one thing I didn't realize, because I'm only familiar with the one tractor supply store uh, where I live now in Connecticut, but they've been quite particular about their rollout strategy of stores. Can you explain where they tend to be located and how that might differ from some other competitors? It's really interesting to look. Their CEO, Hal Lawton, likes to joke that there's not one within 30 miles of New York City, but there's three within a 20-minute drive of Odessa, Texas, right? <laughs> I mean, but actually, I, one of the things I did in the case is I charted the Charlotte, North Carolina metropolitan area. Hmm. And if you look there, there's, a, there's an interstate highway, 485, that kind of encircles the city. Within that beltway, there are eight Lowe's stores wow. and not a single tractor supply. But on the outskirts of that city, now you begin to start seeing those tractors show up in a number of smaller towns. Just for what it's worth, for listeners, a little more numbers, current market cap of the company, $24 billion, a little over 2,300 stores. What is it about the sort of perimeter? Is it just they want to be around people? Their customers have yards. Their customers have a lot of space, basically. Right. Like, what is it about that strategy? They want people who have some land. This mm -hmm. is key. So you've got to have <clears throat> some typical customer has somewhere between one and 10 acres of land. So you have people who have the opportunity to have animals or to have a large vegetable garden, to have a barn or a shed and fencing, things that would require upkeep, right? And so they're looking for that. They also want to have people who are interested in that rural lifestyle. So they call some of these people rural enthusiasts. They might not live on a farm, right? They might live in the suburbs like me. Yeah. The neighbor across the street from me is a millennial couple and they've got chickens, right? They built mm. a chicken coop from Tractor Supply. They only have about a half acre of land, right? So those are what they would call rural enthusiasts. And then the hobby farmer has a little more land. They might have a few more animals and a lot more vegetables or fruit trees. So why don't we just get to that sort of important question, which is what is it about this business that has made it special or successful in your mind? And how much of it is they've discovered a niche, a growing niche at this moment in time, the hobby farmer, the cottage core millennial, call it what you want, versus they are doing something different from other rural mm. or home goods stores like Lowe's, Home Depot, maybe a running, something like that? Well, they're clearly, I mean, John Ortis, who's the, the head of stores for the company, told me, we clearly want to stay out of the headlights of Lowe's and Home Depot. So their strategy, uh, very explicit, right? David Yaffe and Michael Cusimano are, are two business school professors who coined this term judo strategy many mm. years ago. And uh, the idea is avoid head-to-head -head competition with the big giants, and even use the giant's strengths against them the way you would in mm. judo. And I think Tractor's done that really well. They have this very eclectic product mix. For example, you can't paint your kitchen with supplies from Tractor Supply, but you can mm. paint your barn or your tractor, hmm. right? So hmm. whereas if you go into Lowe's, right, there's this enormous paint section, right? So they're very careful to avoid that direct head-to-head -head competition. 
And then they've got this really eclectic product mix. Well, this actually leads into one thing I wanted to ask you, which is why don't they compete on sort of home construction materials? And I think you mentioned in your case study that at one point they attempted it, but it turned out to be something of a disaster. They went through a near-death experience, not simply because of that, but around that time. This was in the late 70s, early 80s, and they exited that market. That's another principle of judo strategy is when you know confronted directly by a more formidable competitor, back away and realize what your strengths are and what theirs are. And bottom line is Home Depot has tremendous economies of scale. So just looking at their sales, right? They're more than 10 times the size of tractor supply. Wow. So think about trying to buy lumber and buy a lot of those building materials, Tractor's just not going to be able to do it the way Home Depot can do it. And so it's trying to avoid that competition and instead compete, you know, in these other areas. And of course, one key to this model is animal feed Mm. because people have to buy feed for their animals come recession, come boom. It doesn't matter. And, you know, as one of the executives told me, uh, people love to talk about their animals as much as many people love to talk about their children, right? So they love their animals and they're going to take good care of them no matter the economic conditions. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Can I just ask one sort of more step back question? The company was formed in 1938, and I think it started as a mail order catalog. I assume it wasn't. Did it at one point have a more explicit professional farmer standpoint or like did it evolve into this sort of niche it found of the sort of non-professional and how did it sort of find find that groove? They did start out, you know, as mail order and then yeah. and then a store in, in North Dakota, actually their first retail store. They started out during the Great Depression and they absolutely were serving professional farmers and selling them tractor parts. Mm-hmm. Today, that's a small part of their business. They really went through a major transition after the founders sold. They were part of two different conglomerates. Remember the big conglomerates of the 70s? And as you know, many of them did not thrive. And yeah. so eventually Tractor gets bought out and a man named Tom Hennessy 
leads a management buyout, and he really refashions the strategy around the hobby farmer. And that's led to four decades of remarkable hmm. success. So when it comes to targeting the hobby farmer, it seems like obviously part of it is, as you say, the product mix and getting it right and sort of just having a very different overall set of goods than one might get at a Home Depot or Lowe's. What about the role of customer service in that? And uh, how important is that element in terms of having staff that really like thinks about this particular customer? So they do a couple of interesting things. One of the most interesting things is they say, we hire our customers. Hmm. They want people who- Tracy, don't go. <laughs> they go. It Tracy, is tempting. It, it, it's don't tempting. Go. They actually will reach out to people they see in the stores often. Huh. Uh, my neighbor, Scott, has been approached several times about going to work there. <laughs> really? Um, he's a loyal customer. They want people who know and live the lifestyle, who know about how to raise chickens and the like. They can always teach them store processes and huh. retail metrics and all those types of things. What they want is someone who really understands the product. Sorry, is that rare? Like in your experience of just real quickly covering other stores, is that unique or do other companies also do that? I think others try to do it. It becomes more and more difficult as companies grow. Yeah. And I think Tractor has been able to maintain that, but it is a question going forward. You know, they're up over 2,000 stores and that's always a question. Can we continue to find people who have that knowledge? I think that's what the home improvement chains used to do very, very well. And right, it's been right. a challenge as they've grown. Huh. Yeah. So this is one of my enduring frustrations with our local Lowe's, which is you go in and you ask a question and rarely, I would say, do you get reliable information back. But is it different at Tractor Supply? These people are incredibly knowledgeable, but they also say to me, they told me, you know, we learn from our customers. One great story a district manager told me was about a customer who explained to him how he could detect what kind of animal was attacking his chicken coop. Hmm. And so it's something he didn't huh. know, right? But these conversations happen. They talk about creating community. And this is a big part of the customer service story is they say, you know, our customer is the kind of person who wants to put their foot up on a bag of feed corn and talk to other customers. And then if you listen to those conversations, hmm. you learn a great deal about customer needs, right? Customer wants and the lifestyle of those customers. Wait, how do you tell what's been attacking your chickens? Yeah. I, I guess there'd be tracks, right? I know some people install uh, video cameras as well to monitor, but... Well, you certainly can do that. But it turns out it has something to do with some animals will essentially devour the chicken right there and then. Mm. And so you see all the feathers in one oh. place and others will take the chicken away. And so you'll see this trail across your yard or property. <laughs> this is beyond my knowledge, Tracy. That's all I can tell you. This is not- I got to ask a tractor supply This is not employee. the Harvard Business School typical <laughs> curriculum. Uh, Correct. Man, so many questions. You know, you mentioned the sort of near-death experience that they've had when they've tried to go into building supplies. They have had some history of consolidation and buying competitors. Can you talk a little bit about the company's acquisition strategy and how it thinks about when it's opportune to buy and bring another company into the fold? They have been very careful about their acquisition strategy over the years. I think they've done two things with it, Joe. One is they've tried to use it to fill in pockets geographically okay. to accelerate right, their ability to saturate the market rather than relying strictly on organic growth. But I think the second and maybe even more important part of their strategy has been to learn about particular categories where certain rivals have had strengths. So currently, their most recent acquisition looks to me, at least as an outsider, like an attempt to learn more about sporting goods. Hmm. This is a company, Tractor Supply, that doesn't have as big of a presence in Which things like fishing Which company is it? Holes. What was their recent This purchase? is uh, Orschland. Or Orschland. 
Okay. And uh, of course, I think they're at the point now, though, where they may run up against antitrust issues, right? They had uh. to divest some of those stores as part of that deal. And I wonder if they'll they'll be able to do any further acquisitions in the farm and ranch store space. But up till now, it has been a nice complement to organic growth. And this knowledge they've acquired, as I say, most recently, this one is allowing them to dabble a bit more in sporting goods, fishing as an example of something where they think there might be opportunity, but they know there are some formidable, high-knowledge players in that space, like Bass Pro Shops. So they want to learn more. Right. Don't they have some partnerships as well? I think they sell Carhartt. They have an amazing partnership with Carhartt. They're one of the most, one of the largest retailers of Carhartt apparel. And and the new store remodels they've been doing as part of Project Fusion, they've been sort of making these Carhartt store within a store, little shops, consolidating the products. They sell uh, Ariat Boots, for example, another great partnership that they have. And of course, they have really ridden the Yellowstone trend. Oh, Uh, yeah. You know, if you read the Wall Street Journal a, a few months ago, it talked about how millennial New Yorkers who've never seen a farm in their life are running around wearing Yellowstone apparel. (laughs) And so they've partnered with Lainey Wilson, the country music sensation, uh, who's also (laughs) a star on Yellowstone, and they do sell some Yellowstone apparel as well. What is their online component and how have they navigated e-commerce? So this has been a push most recently. Hal Lawton became CEO just before the pandemic began. He had been at Macy's running e-commerce for them and before that running e-commerce for Home Depot for many years. And so Hal brought a lot of that knowledge with him. And so they've made a big push. They were already starting to dabble with the idea of buy online, pick up in store. And then of course, with the pandemic, they rushed out that process across the whole network. They found something pretty interesting. They admitted to me that some of the executives were skeptical about this because they thought, well, are we going to get less store traffic and less impulse buying if people are simply picking up at the curb? But what they found is that people live in some cases, a pretty long distance from a tractor supply store. So what they want to do is that they want to be able to get online, see that the product is in the store, know Mm. they can pick it up. Let's say it's feed for their horse. But then once they get there, right, now they've made that trip, they're going to go in and talk to their fellow customers. They're going to go in the store, buy other things, but they don't want to make that trip unless they know what they absolutely need is there. So they're using the buy online, pick up in store uh, process really interestingly. Just to press on this point, though, how are they competing against Amazon? Because Amazon does have, a pre- as far as I can tell, a pretty good network, even in rural areas. It's it's not hard to get a bag of bird seed, for instance, off Amazon. In some cases, you can get it in two or three days. So how do they compete with that? There's no question that the online players like Amazon are competitors. And I think one of the things that's different is they're selling big bulk pet food, Mm. right? Much bigger bags than you can buy, for example, at the supermarket. Huge bags of animal feed, the kind of things that are pretty hard to transport, right? And Uh, so that's a key thing that's helping them uh, deal with the online threat. Out of curiosity, where does the farmer shop who is like, oh, it's not a hobby anymore? Who's like the sort of next above that's like, oh, this is actually becoming a professional thing. Someone who like actually sells good maybe at a farmer's market or something like that. Like who's their competitor for the big, the larger scale customer? Yeah, there are large, you know, um, Agway and other okay, players yeah. that serve farmers. Obviously, John Deere on the equipment side has dealerships throughout the country, mm. as do other uh, players in the tractor business. So you've got people who are serving the professional farmer on the high end. That's been consolidating over the years. Very large players doing that. But there are, there's really, it's a much more fragmented market for the hobby farmer. Their largest competitor only has about 180 stores. Who is and, that? 
That's Baumgars now. Okay. And they've got over 2,000. So this is a formidable advantage they have in a fragmented market. Mm. The other thing I'd say, by the way, about the online presence is this creating community. And they actually talk about it. Like they say, you know, we're a little bit Home Depot. Mm. We're a little bit Target. And that we sell stuff for your home. We sell cool stuff like Target. But we're a little bit Starbucks about community. And this is the other piece that helps them against Amazon. So you can wash your pet. I was about to ask about the pet grooming stations. Yes, a little bit Petco too, right? Yes, absolutely. So you, they have self-wash, pet wash stations. You can get your pet or your animal vaccinated. But my favorite thing they do is the chicken swap. Now, this is actually, in many cases, organized by customers, but Tractor Supply hosts it in their parking lot. And Whoa. hobby farmers come and they bring their animals. And believe it or not, they swap animals, they swap knowledge. And Tractor, of course, is out huh. there hosting the event. This is the kind of experiential retail that online players can't compete with as effectively. Tracy, I think we should film, we should do a live video episode at a, at a chicken swap. Yeah, I I would love to, Joe. Yes. <laughs> let's all do a field trip to you, uh, my local tractor supply for the chicken swap. Let's do it. You know, I got to say, I did not expect to get like sort of watery in my eyes reading a Harvard <laughs> Business School case study. But I did at the intro of yours because it starts with an anecdote, I guess, of like a farmer who like delivered a calf in the middle of the night and needed something right away and called the manager. What happened? Tell the story. These stories are, are incredible that I heard <laughs> from around the country. You know, and this one was the manager hears that a calf is being born. They go to the store. They get the materials the farmer needs. At they, like 1 a.m. In the middle of the night, yeah. they go there and deliver the product to the farmer's home. And the farmer wants to pay. And they were like, listen, the calf needs to be born. You need to deal with that. Just come in later in the week and pay. And they took care of the customer. One of my other favorite stories is this. This grandmother was walking through the store looking to buy feed for her granddaughter's horse. And one of the associates in the store realizes that this poor grandmother is kind of lost because usually the girl's dad, her son, would be buying it. But he died oh. a few days earlier. The store manager runs out, buys a sympathy card, has all the team members sign it, and puts a $250 gift card in there for the grandmother before she walks out the door that day. Wow. These are kind of these, you know, as they call it, going the country mile efforts, which are a key part of their sort of cult, if you will. Can we talk a little bit more about that and maybe even beyond Tractor? Because I imagine lots of companies would like to instill something like this in their workforce, right? I imagine every manager would love it if their employees had the wherewithal to identify that, buy the card, get the other people in the store to sign it. But I also imagine that is not easy to engender. And it's probably not easy at a time of high labor turnover in which you have a lot of new people who don't have that. Are there any patterns that are like from Tractor specifically or other companies that sort of predict whether a company is able to get this out of their workforce? You know, you mentioned earlier the other case that I've become well known for that, that, that I wrote with David as well, David Ager, and that's Trader Joe's. Yeah. And I think about those two companies and boy, they have incredibly passionate customers yeah. who often become passionate employees. They treat them well. Yeah, they pay them well. They offer them good working conditions. But it's much more than that, in my opinion, because frankly, they can get the same pay or better at another retailer in many cases. But it is about the kind of environment where they give them some autonomy mm. to really engage with the customer. They're not working off a script. They're they're not necessarily always doing the exact same task. They cross-train them at Trader Joe's. They cross-train them at Tractor Supply. This ability to kind of do a variety of tasks 
to find meaning in your work because you're passionate about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. These are really important things. And yeah. I wanted to ask a related question. I'm trying to think how, how to phrase this, but how much of that dedication has to do with the actual material you're dealing with? So feed for animals and agrarian equipment and, and growing things versus the business model and the things the company is doing to engender, I guess, employee um, dedication. Could this be replicable at a place like Home Depot or does it take a specific type of person to really do it? I think, it, you know, this can apply to other uh, retailers as well in different spaces. But I think this common tie among these kinds of players that I've seen is that they are finding these sort of very passionate customers. People already care deeply about the product or the lifestyle. I mean, the people at Trader Joe's, there's no more cult-like brand, right? People line up. I mean, I remember when they opened the store in near Columbus yeah. Circle, the oh, lines yeah. were, you know, incredible, right? So that certainly helps. But I think it's also about telling your employees that they're not robots, right? They can actually engage and have some ability to think on their own about how can we serve that customer? Well, the other thing I want to ask you about is, I, I guess, the pay structure at Tractor Supply and how much does that feed into mm. engendering employee loyalty and dedication? And I was reading the business case and one of the unusual things it seems that Tractor Supply is doing is they're providing profit shares for not just managers, but for even part-time employees. This is unique, right? So mm. many of the store managers I talked to said that at prior retailers where they worked, the managerial staff would get profit sharing, but you wouldn't see it flow all the way down to the store employees, even part-timers. And here, you know, last year, I think they paid more than a dollar per hour extra as part of profit sharing to your, your frontline team member in the store. That's pretty significant for someone. I think the other thing they've done is they've had to, because of market conditions, raise wages pretty considerably during the pandemic. So we've seen a 35% increase in wages. And that's just to keep up with Walmart and Target and others who've been increasing wages. So they've had to do that, but they've also extended benefits and improved benefits for people. And then they did some very pandemic-specific things. For example, they offered employees who had kids who were being schooled at home, who didn't have a, a good personal computer, and they bought them Chromebooks or other personal computers, about 3,000 of these wow. for the children and grandchildren of their associates. So they did take these extra steps to care for their employees during the pandemic that I think have paid off as well. The other thing I think they've done uh, is they've tried not to extend themselves. So they've been hiring aggressively. They say they've tried to keep revenue per full-time equivalent roughly equal, even as revenue has exploded. Hmm. Rather than trying to drive margin improvement in a dramatic way, they've reinvested both in the workforce and then in store remodels. So it's a, it's a nicer place to work as they've improved the stores too. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk more about the pandemic and how they've navigated the last few years, because this has been a really tough environment for anyone for obvious reasons. But I have to imagine there are some added complications or maybe that's not the right word, but with uh, tractor supply in part because it was, it's been hard to know and it may be still deter. TBD about like the degree to which certain lifestyle patterns that came about in 2020 and 2021 are going to persist. And so obviously there were probably a lot of people that in 2020, like I'm going to get chickens, I'm going to do this. And then in 2023, it's like, damn, I have a full-time job. I don't have time for chickens. These are like hard things to navigate. And it's hard to know like what's going to last and what's going to be persistent and so forth. Talk to us a little bit about like the pandemic shock, the consumption boom, and how they've sort of managed to balance things out? This is the big question to me, and the big question in the case. We've seen the companies that have flamed out, right? We've seen the Pelotons of the world, right? Mm -hmm. But we've also seen some firms that they haven't flamed out, but they've seen a reset, right? So Home Depot just this morning announcing earnings, yeah. right? And comps are down 2%, so not dramatically, but this is a company that was recording pretty incredible comps, Home Depot and Lowe's were. As for Tractor, I mean, comps peaked over 20% during 2020. That's a crazy number. You know, I worked at Staples before I became an academic. I mean, 20% comps, I've never heard of such mm-hmm. a thing. And yet, you know, last year they were a little over 6%. Now, uh, this recent quarter, they were like 2.5%. So they've settled down, but they're still positive. The question is, how much of a reset, you know, is happening? And and are these trends permanent? As you say, will people continue to raise the chicks? And I think this is the challenge they're navigating going forward that will be really important for them to navigate. So far, they've done a pretty good job relative to a lot of the other I'll call them pandemic flashes in the pan, right? Mm -hmm. At retaining customers. And the stock is way up since 2020. So clearly it's not one of these, you know, mountaintops that's just back to the base. So when you spoke to management, did you get any inklings or clues about what's next in terms of the strategy? Because for the past few years, it has just been, you know, expansion, managing through the Mm. pandemic and trying to match supply with demand. Well, one of the biggest things they've been doing is transforming their side lots. I think this is a really interesting play. It comes with some risks, right? So so if you know the side lot, maybe the one you go to, mm-hmm. Tracy, it's got a lot of large agricultural equipment, big fencing, for example, for your goats, right? And it's spread out typically in the sort of side parking lot. And what they've realized is a lot of wasted real estate there, right? Because you've really spread that stuff out and they've, they've looked to actually build some small garden centers. Mm. They've opened a few hundred of these around the country. But Hal Lawton told me we want to over-index on certain kinds of gardening, right? So in other words, they're looking to sell more fruit trees than you would get at many other places. Hmm. They're going to sell less flowers and more vegetables, right? Because they don't want to compete head-to-head, again, with some of those big players in the home improvement space. Right. So Home Depot and Lowe's sell all the annuals and perennials. Right. And so they're going to have a little bit of that, Tracy, but they're going to over-index, they said. So now why is this potentially uh, a risk? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's appealing. It's appealing for me as someone with a big garden, the notion that I can go to Tractor now where I go anyway for a lot of things. But this does nudge them closer to head-to-head competition, right? Even with that over-indexing, their product mix is now going to overlap just a little bit more with mm-hmm. some of these other players. And this is an issue, I think, as firms try to drive comps as they mature is even if they start out not competing very directly with other players, they encroach gradually. Think about Starbucks and Dunkin', two firms that 30 years ago looked radically different. And yet Dunkin' sells lattes, right? Starbucks has drive-thrus. They've grown more like we call this strategy convergence. And Mm. that is the risk, but I think that's one key area. And then the other key area, Joe and Tracy, is is obviously, I think, the idea of exploring sporting goods as a result of the recent deal. I will note that the store nearest me, the store manager said they've he's had a lot of success, for example, selling kayaks already hmm. in his store. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you talk about, okay, when it comes to the outdoor space, that they want to sell more plants, but maybe fruits and vegetables is a way to differentiate themselves from the big flower sellers. Is there a way in sport sporting goods that it can differentiate itself from a Bass Pro Shop, like a way so that they could sell sporting goods, but in a way that's more attractive and keeping to their true audience? I wish I knew. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know because I, I mean, I am a big Bass Pro yeah. customer. My son loves to fish. The knowledge the folks at Bass Pro have and the selection. I mean, I can't imagine Tractor in their small stores is ever going to be able to offer that kind of selection. Why isn't Bass Pro publicly traded? Who owns them? Oh, the Johnny Morris, the founder, still owns them. Oh, really? I might be wrong there, Joe, but I believe he still owns the company. And that's a very much a destination retail kind of place. People drive. I, I think I wrote in the case that in... In four or five states in the U.S., a Bass Pro is the biggest tourist destination really? in the state. <laughs> That's amazing. Pretty incredible. So, I've always wanted. What's it? Is it in Memphis? Right? They have the. There's the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid. You got I've always it. wanted to go to that. I do think there's a few things. For example, Tractor sells gun safes. Mm-hmm. Right. The tractor near me doesn't sell guns, but like so. That's like an interesting yeah. niche thing. And by the way, I think they said to me, you know, people buy them for things other than guns, Mm. right? So they just happen to be called gun safes, right? So they found a little niche. Hmm. This is this eclectic product mix, right, that they've found. I mean, my favorite, of course, is the toolboxes for the trucks that are branded tractor supply. I mean, people are literally advertising for the company. And they just somehow spotted the tractor this supply baseball hats as well. Those are all over. You know what did they? I think they Can told me they sold almost Tracy? a million of them. I'd be glad to bring you what any excuse <laughs> to go to the tractor supply store. Are buying decisions made at the local level? Like, is there a store buyer or a regional buyer? Like, who wh- who is empowered to make these choices? And I imagine that the good mix must be different in different locations of the country. It is. So they they are working from their store support center in, in Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, but they are in close communication with the local markets. And there's quite significant differences. You could imagine, right? I mean, the Northeast, you have much colder temperatures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, raising chicks, for example, looks really different in the Northeast than it does uh, in Texas, for example, just simply because of the temperatures, but also in terms of uh, the types of things that you have, right? So you're not having cattle, in the Northeast, generally speaking, right? But you might have someone with a few cows or mm-hmm. a few mm-hmm. uh, bulls in Texas, for example. So they um, very much work on their team to tailor their products around the country. So the stores look a little different as you go around the country. Is that very different to how some other big box stores operate? 
No, I don't. I think the good ones all try to tailor. You know, I know that at Trader Joe's, they certainly mm. try to deal with the fact that, for example, the demographic composition of the population looks very different in Southern California than it does in Boston, right? And so I think Trader's been very effective at trying to understand that. So you'll see some differences. Obviously, in Trader's case, it's always that same private label strategy, mm. right? So they're not messing with that. That's really fundamental to them. But the mix of the product is going to look different based on their assessment of the demographic composition of the population. Right. So just going back to the purpose of the Harvard Business Case mm. Study, if you're a student reading this document, what managerial conclusions do you think they should come away with here? Oh, boy. I now guess I'm, I'm asking I'm you to do their work for them. I know. I'm now, sorry. If, if, you're, if you're a student, don't listen to this Don't part. listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, for me, I am going to teach some of these principles of judo strategy. How does a smaller player compete against players that yeah. are 10 times their size, find a way to not compete head-to-head -head or try not to, and to even use the, the strengths of those rivals against them. Think about it. Can a large home improvement chain or can a Petco do the chicken swaps? Right. I, I think that's hard to do, actually, right? You know, store models are incredibly rigid. That's one thing, you know, you note about retail. Think about how many retailers, for example, large retailers have tried to open uh, smaller format yeah. stores and failed. Why do they fail? It, it turns out it's like a machine when you run a retailer. You have two, 3,000, 4,000 stores. Mm -hmm. They're all roughly the same size. They're cookie cutters, right? And now suddenly you want to operate a very different uh, store format, much smaller, much more neighborhoody. It turns out it's really difficult. And what firms do is they, we call this straddling. So give an example, Trader yeah. Joe's. Okay. How come no one has been able to copy them? Well, remember Whole Foods yeah. tried that little experiment with the 365 by Whole Foods stores? Yeah. These were these small little stores that only sold the Whole Foods private label. Total debacle. They closed them all, right? Why? Because they were not as good as a Whole Foods, hmm. right? And not as good as a Trader Joe's. They were hmm. sort of this hybrid four-humped camel, right, that they tried to create. This is the same thing Delta did when they created Song. Right. Oh, not yeah. as good as Delta, not as good as Southwest, some kind of weird thing in between. What is another, maybe in a different industry or something, where a company that you would teach is an example of a, a judo, a, a successful judo? Strategy? Yeah. I mean, the other one I've been, as I say, I'm just finishing up is a case on Viking Cruise Lines. Okay. Yeah. This is a really interesting company. I'll tell you how I got interested. I got a brochure. I was really mad, Joe, when I got the brochure because <laughs> Viking targets mature couples. <clears throat> and uh, I was like, wait a second. I'm not a Why mature am I getting this? Color. Why am I getting this? And, that's um, how you know you're getting old when yeah. you start ticking, you know, yeah. different boxes for demographics and you start getting exactly. targeted yeah. ads. And my wife really rubbed it in. She goes, well, she's a few years younger than me. She goes, well, I didn't get the brochure. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, there's a page in the Viking brochure and it says, what Viking doesn't do? Hmm. And this intrigues me because this is what I teach, the idea of, you know, what Michael Porter once wrote, the idea of the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do, making trade-offs right? Trader, you know, not selling branded goods and not doing self-checkout and not doing traditional TV ads, all the things Trader Joe's doesn't do, right? Tractor, not doing a lot of the things yeah. the big home improvement chains do. Well, what about Viking? No one under the age of 18 can go on one of their ships. Oh, right? I love it. Yeah. So it is truly for the mature couple. They don't allow you to bring your family. The no casinos, hmm. right? They over-index on river cruising, dominate hmm. in river cruising, smaller boats, much more intimate. So they found a way, right? And as it turns out, Royal Caribbean, right? All about the big boats. Wait, holy cow, we got to compete in the river segment? By the time they realized what was going on, Viking had 
established a dominant presence on the European rivers with these smaller boats. And so it's just oh. another example of a firm that really did this quite well. Hmm. Here's the important question. Are you going to go on a Viking cruise now? So now I'm intrigued, but I think I'm still too young, Tracy. <laughs> I hope so, but I'm intrigued. There's like, what, 2,100 or somewhere, 2,000 somewhere of these locations. Like, how much more space is there in this country for for Tractor? So, Tractor just announced with their recent quarterly earnings release that they've raised their target for stores to 3,000 across the country. Analysts reacted really positively to that. I always worry about aggressive growth targets, but... That's not a you know dramatic number. They're already over 2,000, but you always worry about that saturation issue um, when you're trying to grow locations. No question about it. So, But yes, they are going to try to get to 3,000, but not overnight. Hmm. I think it looks to be a fairly gradual plan. And I think it's interesting. Some of the retailers who've taken that slow, gradual approach, that's hard to do. You know, management gets antsy sometimes. Yeah. Let's see hmm. if they stick to it. But right now, the plan is a gradual growth to 3,000. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots and explaining the tractor supply business case. Really appreciate it. That was fun. That was so good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Tracy. So, Joe, have you been a hobby farm pilled? I'm really excited about our live video episode from the chicken swap. So, yes, 100%. And in the meantime, I am putting in an order for a hat. I'll pay you back. You don't have to buy it for me. But next time, please pick me up a uh, tractor supply hat. I already told you I am grateful for any excuse (laughs) to go to my local tractor supply. Well, the other thing is I wonder if we could expense uh, chicken purchases on Bloomberg. In the name of Odd Lots. Yes, we definitely can. Excellent. Well, no, that was really interesting. I think also the sort of judo strategy analogy of sort of like zigging where other companies are zagging makes a lot of sense and trying to compete, you know, essentially competing in the same space, but in a slightly different way. Can I say, I would not mind if we did a lot more of these sort of like business strategy episodes. Yeah. Which we have, we've done some company episodes Monster. before. Monster. Did we ever do a Domino's We did one? a Domino's we one. Did. Yeah, we did. But like, you know, thinking about these things like, oh, the essence of strategy is like what you don't do or these certain ideas or the judo strategy or why is it that retailers have a hard time moving from large format to small format? You know, Walmart's tried this. Amazon's tried a bunch of like physical stores. I never know if they work. I could see us doing way more like this episode because that seems like a fruitful area to learn how these companies actually operate. Well, totally. And also just getting an opportunity to ask more questions about pricing as well, because I'm still really interested in how individual corporate pricing decisions are feeding into the bigger macro picture. I'm also just the certain like, how do you get that like right mix? Because it's not like totally intuitive to me that's like, okay, vegetables and gun safes and kayaks and a certain size feed. But like, obviously, that's what the company's like special sauces is getting that. And then how do you also like, I imagine every company, like I said, would love to have employees who would be that attentive to customers. But it's got to be like really hard to build. Well, I will tell you, I plan to put in um, some blueberry bushes this fall, hopefully, and I plan on getting them from Tractor Supply and getting some recommendations for which ones might work.
Anyway, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Michael Roberto, at Michael A. Roberto. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin, and Dashiell Bennett, at Dashbot. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. And... For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcripts, a blog, and a newsletter. And check out our Discord, really fun place to hang out on the web, listeners chatting 24-7 about all these topics. Go there, discord.gg slash Oh, we also share pictures of our respective yes, tomato plants. there's an HGTV channel that Tracy set up where she posts photos of her garden. And if you like Odd Lots, please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.